You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. everybody. David Guzik here. Welcome to our uh, live question and answer time here on the YouTube channel. Uh, this is only the second time I've ever done a Monday live Q&A, and we're adding this extra Q&A because of the times that we live in. This whole season of the uh, coronavirus and the COVID-19, whatever it is that we're calling it these days, I mean, I think this is a big deal for us to be concerned about, and it just means that people, or at least some people, have more time at home. Some people have more time to give attention to these things, and so it's an opportunity for us to spend a little bit more time online, and uh, it's just doing what I can to minister to people in the midst of a needy time like this. So I hope that you can join me for today or for some of our recorded question and answer times. Uh, as is my custom, I like to begin with a opening question, and uh, the opening question I'll get to in just a minute, other than just to remind people that we are, in addition to adding a second Q&A during the week, which I'm doing now on Mondays, the other day normally is on Thursdays, uh, we're also uh, added, we've also added a daily devotional that I do uh, on video here on the YouTube channel. So again, if you subscribe or whatever, get the notifications, you can see whenever those come out. But every morning, uh, probably for the next month or so, we'll be doing these greetings because from what we read on the news today and lately, I mean, look, things are always changing. But from what we hear and see on the news today, it seems like the uh, shutdown, the suggested kind of self-quarantine, uh, containment, social distancing, all that, that's going to continue for another month or so through the month of April. All right, so uh, let me talk about this specific question I wanted to lead off with today. It comes from Kristana Hall. Uh, I'll read her question in just a moment. But really, I can summarize it with this phrase, what about generational curses? And this is a question that comes up from time to time and that people are interested in. So let's get right at it. Here's Kristana's question here. Uh, she says, hi, Pastor Dave. Greetings from Simi Valley, California. By the way, greetings back to you, Kristana. Uh, we used to live in Simi Valley. I pastored a church there for some 14 years. And uh, that church continues on under the leadership of a friend of mine, a man named uh, Pastor Tim Coleman, Calvary Chapel, Simi Valley. Anyway, back to Kristana's question. She says, hi, Pastor David. Greetings from Simi Valley, California. My question is, does God punish children for the sins of their parents, as Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 seems to indicate. Well, Kristana, in her question, did not exactly use the phrase generational curse, but that's a phrase a lot of people use for this idea that Kristana is mentioning here. And it's the idea that either God punishes the children for the sins of parents, or that there can be curses, spiritually speaking, that are passed down from generation to generation. So Christian, let me give you a quick answer to your specific question. Does God punish children for the sins of their parents? No. Now we'll talk about the relevant passage in Exodus 34, also Exodus chapter 20, but then later on, we're gonna go also to Ezekiel chapter 18. But let me talk about this idea of a generational curse, which again, Christiana, I understand that wasn't exactly the question that you asked 
but it's very much related to, and we get a lot of inquiries about this idea of a generational curse. So the idea of a generational curse in the way most Christians use the term is false. The idea is simply this, that there is some specific spiritual power that punishes or afflicts a family of individuals from generation to generation. For example, if the great-great-grandfather was cursed with drunkenness, so will his descendants be, and so forth. Or if the great-great-grandmother was a fortune teller, then there is a spiritual affliction and darkness that's passed down through that through the generations. Let me just simply say this is not true for reasons I'm going to explain in just a moment. But I do want to say this. We do recognize, or maybe I'll just say I recognize, I do recognize that those who are raised in an environment of sin may very well repeat those same sins. But it's not because they're cursed and they must by some spiritual power, but simply because their environment made it an easy choice for them to make. I don't doubt that someone who grows up in the home of an alcoholic may find it easier to become an alcoholic. By the way, they may also grow up with a distinct aversion to alcohol because of what they saw, the destruction around them. But it's possible that someone who grows up in an environment of a specific sin may be attracted or learn through habits or patterns and, and have a certain propensity to those sins. But that's something from the environment. It's not a generational curse, nor is it God punishing a uh, younger generation for the sins of an older generation. And there may also be genetic aspects of this at work that in part we understand, maybe in other aspects we don't understand. Again, just to use the example of drunkenness, and I'm not just trying to pick on that, but it's just one that comes to mind there seems to be some genetic propensity to intoxication and addiction and so forth. And, and that can be passed on. But again, we're not talking about there being a spiritual affliction and darkness. What we are saying is that there is not a specific curse from either God or the devil that makes these things so. There may be environmental factors. There may be genetic factors, but there's not a specific spiritual curse from either God or the devil that makes these things so. And the danger of this belief, here's the real danger, is that it deflects from true spiritual responsibility. As long as we're blaming something else, something that is not the cause, if we're blaming that, then we're not putting our focus on what truly is the cause. Okay, so let me talk about some of these relevant passages. Uh, Christana mentioned Exodus chapter 34, verses uh, 6 and 7. And uh, let, let me read to you. Th this is the revelation of God's character to Moses. Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to begin in the middle of verse 6. It says this. And God proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
Now, of course, we see in this passage that the larger context is that God is keeping mercy for thousands. He's forgiving iniquity and transgression sin. That's what it says there in verse seven, that God shows his goodness towards us in his very forgiving character. By the way, this helps us to put away forever the idea that there's a bad God of the Old Testament who stands in contrast to the supposedly good God of the New Testament. God's character of love and mercy and grace is present in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. By the way, God's character of righteousness and judgment against sin is also present in the New Testament, but that's another matter. But again, we find that this emphasis of God's compassionate, gracious, long-suffering character is evident there in the Old Testament in verse 7. But verse 7 also says this, by no means clearing the guilty. If someone rejects the love and forgiveness of God, God will punish them. And that punishment will have repercussions through the generations that hate him. Now, remember that phrase, through the generations that hate him. That's quoting from Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But this is what I just want you to understand, is that God's loving, gracious, and giving character do not cancel out his righteousness. Because of the work of Jesus, the righteousness of God is satisfied for us, and the grace and mercy of God are righteously given. And that phrase, to the third and fourth generation, that's basically a Semitic idiom of speech, just as saying, it will go on, again, through the generations that hate me. And I get this from Genesis, excuse me, from Exodus chapter 20, verses four, five, and six. Let me read that to you. Again, this is before Exodus 34. So this is the prior principle that is being built upon later. This is the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in the heaven above or that's in the earth beneath, or that is the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so we see that phrase there in verse five, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God's jealous in the sense that he won't accept merely being added to someone's life. God insists on being the supreme of somebody's life. And God does this out of love. But he says here in verse five, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation And Christana, this is the phrase I want you to understand here from Exodus 20, verse 5. Of those who hate me. This does not mean that God punishes people directly for the sins of their ancestors. Remember those important words. Of those who hate me. If the descendants love God they will not have the iniquity of the fathers visited upon them. And again, it necessarily just says by implication, if the children walk in the steps of their fathers, they are going to face the same judgment that their fathers uh, received. But if 
they turn to the Lord with repentance and love, they will receive the grace and the goodness of God. When children repeat the sins of their fathers, they too will be punished. They won't be able to excuse it. Well, look, it was just something I received from my fathers. No, it's something that you yourself did as well. So this is a very important idea, a very important principle here. Now, I don't want to leave the Exodus chapter 20 passage without taking a look at verse 6 as well that says this, but showing mercy to thousands and to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's possible for everyone to receive God's mercy if they'll only turn to him in love and obedience. Now, Kristana, let me give one more aspect to the answer here. And it's from a very important passage in Ex excuse me, Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 18. In Ezekiel chapter 18, the chapter begins with God rebuking a false proverb that was present in the day of Ezekiel. Check this out. Verses 1 through 3, Ezekiel chapter 18. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Now, God spoke to Israel regarding a proverb that apparently was commonly used among the Jewish people in Ezekiel's day. And this was such a popular proverb in that day. It's also quoted in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 29 and 30. And it's found in a very similar form in Lamentations chapter 5, verse 7. So again, the, the, the people are trusting in, they're thinking about this proverb. And what did the proverb specifically say? Look at verse two. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You see, that proverb was a protest, a complaint. The idea was that the present generation was being unjustly punished for what their fathers did. I mean, after all, in normal things, if the fathers eat the sour grapes, then the fathers have the sour taste in their mouth. But according to the Proverbs, the fathers didn't have the sour taste, but the children did. Now, again, this is a very important principle that God says, no, this is not true. You are no longer to use that proverb among my people because God, and as the rest of Ezekiel chapter 18 goes on to explain, God wanted them to know that each individual is responsible before God. Jeremiah rebukes this idea. Ezekiel rebukes this idea because it leads to what you might call a spirit of fatalism and irresponsibility. I've got problems in my life. I've got sin problems. I've got, the, but it's not really my fault. It's the fault of a previous generation. Now, it's not true. God says we shouldn't use it. So we need to just be very careful, very thoughtful as we bring all this before the Lord and realize 
that God gives us actually a very sure, a very certain kind of way to approach these things. Um, Number one, if someone feels troubled by sin, take personal responsibility of that before the Lord. Confess your sin, repent of your sin before God. I suppose there's a few people who confess sins unnecessarily before God, but most of us uh, err on the other side, do we not? We err on the side of minimizing our sin before God. No, most of us just need to come to that very simple place where we come before God and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I confess my sin. I repent of my sin before you. Would you please work in me by the power of your Holy Spirit to give me the power to truly repent and to trust in Jesus Christ? That's a prayer before God that God honors, that God sees. So if a person's burdened by individual sin, the answer for them is not to blame it on a previous generation, not to blame it upon a generational curse, even though understanding there may be environmental and maybe even genetic aspects that that make uh, some sins more challenging for a person. But it's not to lay a blame. It's just to lay a heart and a life before God and say, God, I need your help. Now, that's the problem if someone feels like there's some sin that's the difficulty. But don't think that a generational curse is really your problem. If sin is the problem, then it's your sin. But if it is some power of darkness, this is what you need to do. You need to receive authority in Jesus' name and stand against it. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That Jesus lends us his strength, his power, his authority in spiritual warfare, and we can receive authority in Jesus' name and stand against every spiritual darkness. You know, whenever it comes to the idea of spiritual warfare, of course, that great passage in Ephesians chapter six is meaningful. But I always think about Colossians chapter two, verses 13, 14, and 15. Listen to this. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, meaning the cross. Brothers and sisters, here's the good news that when we are in Christ, we've put our faith in him, we understand who Jesus is and what he came to do for us, and we put our trust in him and what he did, then his victory on the cross becomes our victory at the cross. His defeat of principalities and powers, and that means every spiritual darkness That is the place of our victory. And what we need to do is receive the authority that Jesus gives us against the powers of darkness and stand against these things. And every place we see uh, a demonic attack against us or stronghold that needs to be broken, we approach it with the power and the authority of Jesus' name, not with drama, not with theatrics, not with fireworks, 
but with the calm, simple strength of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we stand strong in him. So that's a long answer to your question, Christiana. I hope that helps you. Let me kind of look through our uh, chat window now and go through some question and answers. Uh, uh, let's see here. Let me come back. First of all, Ana says, por favor, en español. Oh, Ana, I so wish that I could do these live chats in Spanish. I am very, very happy for our increased content in Spanish, both our commentary on the entire Bible available in Spanish. Go to EnduringWord.com, click on the commentary menu and look for a, a Biblical Commentario and you'll find our complete commentary on the, tell your Spanish speaking uh, friends and relatives and neighbors about this, church people, we want them to use it. But we've also started, our weekly devotional is now getting translated into Spanish and being sent out. I'm so happy about that. So uh, please, please, uh, I wish we could do more and more. We're going to try to see what we can do. But I am so happy that now the weekly devotional that I write is being translated into Spanish. And uh, we hope that many people will be a part of that. Okay, uh, Cindy says, love the live chat. Thank you, Cindy. Darren says, uh, question, would you consider generational curses legalistic teaching? All right, Darren, I I'll say this, not strictly. Let me give you my understanding of legalism. Legalism at its core means that my status with God depends on what I do or don't do for him. It depends on my obedience or suffers from my disobedience. That's my understanding of the core of legalism. Legalism about earning and deserving. It's not about believing and receiving. That's what the new covenant, what grace is about. So um, I think that somebody could have something of an understanding of God's grace in the new covenant, but still be mistaken or poorly informed about this whole idea of generational curses. So I, I think maybe you'll find many legalistic believers who also believe this, but I don't see a direct link between the two. That's just my take on it, Darren. Thank you for that. Jennifer asks, are imprecatory prayers of the past only and should not be practiced today? Okay, Jennifer, that's a great. And let me tell you about what the imprecatory prayers are. Usually they're associated with the Psalms. And we have a category of Psalms that we call the imprecatory Psalms. Imprecatory, I don't know exactly what it means in Latin, but it means something in Latin. And basically the idea of it, it's Psalms full of curses. It, it's praying that God would smite our enemies, that he would break their teeth and their mouth, that God would destroy and defeat, sometimes even disgrace our enemies. You'll find several Psalms in the 150 Psalms that are basically imprecatory Psalms. And what Jennifer's asking is simply this, are those only prayers that should be asked in the prayed in the past? Should we pray them today? Well, Jennifer, I would say in, in two aspects. Uh, they can be prayed for today. Number one, it's fine to pray imprecatory psalms regarding our spiritual enemies, namely principalities and powers of the devil. In other words, you can pray that God would destroy the devil 
that God would destroy any aspect of his influence, that God would just, uh, and uh, listen, I, I need to clarify. We're not trying to say that we, we know that God has a purpose and a plan for the devil and his actions, even up until the very end. But as regards his particular involvement, you know, if you pray, God, stop it, cease it, turn his plan back upon himself. Uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, as Ephesians chapter six tells us. We battle against principalities and powers and, and uh, forces of darkness in high places. So in those sense, in spiritual warfare, the imprecatory Psalms, I think, have their place. Here's the second place. Regarding humans on a human level, it is far better for you when you feel anger and hatred against your enemies to go pour it out in prayer before God and leave the matter with him and then walk away from it. Lord, I'm so angry with so-and-so. I pray that you would smite them. I pray that you'd smack them in the mouth. I pray that you would disgrace them. Do it to them, Lord. Pray all that. Leave it to God and then walk away. Lord, I've left it with you. Because you say this, Lord, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's yours, Lord. It's not mine. So this is just what we simply understand, is that it's better for someone to let out their anger and frustration to God instead of pretending that they don't have it. Lay it out before God can take it. You might have to repent of it after you lay it out before him, but lay it out before God. He sees your mind, your thoughts anyway. So go ahead, tell him about it. But it's better for you to lay that out before God than for you to actually go out and try smiting those people. Jennifer, I hope that's helpful for you. Okay, Ron asks, Hi, Pastor, I appreciated you getting back to me so quickly on the topic of Barclay. Your answer gave me the comfort and understanding on the materials. Uh, Ron had a question about my use of a commentator named William Barclay, who frankly was a theological liberal. And I wouldn't take Barclay's theology, but when it comes to the Greek and history, he's got some good things to say. So we had a great response with that. God bless you, Ron. Uh, Jose, question in Spanish. Bless you for that. Uh, Scythe asks, what I thought was fascinating, how certain trends repeat themselves. Abraham lied about his wife. Isaac lies about his wife. Jacob dupes his father and later duped himself by having him desired. Yes. Now, again, I think that we can lay these persistent sins that seem to repeat themselves through generations, not as generational curses, but things from environment. And maybe even to some degree, I can't say I know how much of a degree, to some degree genetics. But Scythe, that's a great uh, observation there. We do see it. Abraham lies about his wife. Isaac lies about his wife. Jacob is a deceiver. But look, the, the biggest lesson that we learned was that even these great patriarchs of the Jewish nation, they weren't such hot guys themselves, were they? Uh, God had a lot of work to do in them. Kristana uh, says, hi again, Kristana. Do you think that COVID-19 could be the catalyst that brings about the war of Ezekiel 38? Okay, what Kristan is talking about is in Ezekiel chapter 38, there is a great war or battle described where peoples from the north come down to Israel 
And in a dramatic way, God defends Israel. Christana, I'm trying to say, I don't see the immediate connections there. Maybe somebody else who feels like they know more about it would make those. I don't see those immediate connections, uh, but it certainly is a time when the world is languishing in perplexity and looking for answers. And uh, we know that God will defend his people, uh, his people chosen for his um, uh, plan of the ages and working out in and through Israel. God promises that he'll defend them there in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Uh, again, uh, Sites also mentioning that, oh boy, I lost the question there, that Saul sought to have David killed to satisfy his pride and David sought to have a man killed to satisfy himself. Well, yeah, and again, we, we see similar sins, but what's interesting is that there's no genetic connection between Saul and David, is there? Um. It, it's just interesting to see how these things work out in the scriptures. Um, Nick. Hi, Nick. He asked David, hi, David. Does it matter what elements we use to take communion? Um, Nick, I, I think it does. Now, we I think we have to distinguish between normal times and unusual times. In normal times, when we have access to everything we want to take access to, I would say the best would be to take communion with unleavened bread, maybe matzah that's broken up, unleavened bread, and uh, grape juice. I'll talk about wine in just a moment. Unleavened bread and uh, grape juice. I, I think that those would be the best things to take communion with. Now, if somebody wants to quibble and say, well, they used wine in the Bible, um, that's true. Uh, there's some evidence that the wine they drank in the Bible uh, was watered down significantly. So it wasn't exactly grape juice, that's true, but it wasn't far from it. Um, and look, let's just face it. We live in a day and age when many people are very sensitive to the idea that maybe even uh, a small taste of alcohol could have a detrimental effect on them. Uh, but if somebody insisted on taking communion with wine, I, I certainly wouldn't argue the point. It's not worth arguing about. But really what you're talking about is the fruit of the vine and whether that fruit of the vine is fermented in a certain process with wine or it's non-fermented, as in the case of grape juice, I don't think it really matters. So I think it displays a love for our neighbor to use the unfermented fruit. Of the How about this? Celebrate communion with unfermented wine and unleavened bread. <laughs> okay, anyway, the simple idea being that I think is kind of the ideal. And when we can, that's nice. Um, if you want to have a different kind of bread, that's okay. In the Levitical ceremonies, they weighed before the Lord both a leavened loaf and an unleavened loaf. I wouldn't automatically exclude the idea of using leavened bread, bread with yeast in it. But again, if you ask me what the ideal is, that's what comes to my mind, using unleavened bread and um, unfermented wine. Now, that's under normal practices, but Nick, if, if 
okay, we'll use the extreme scenario. If you're on a desert island and have to have communion with coconut milk and, um, you know, breadfruit from a tree, then you do it. You do it. You remember, you receive the, 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 you, you remember and commemorate the body and the blood of Jesus in those things. Now, th that was, would be extreme, unusual situations. So normally I would just say unleavened bread, unfermented wine, which is grape juice, but that's another thing altogether. So that's my take on that, Nick. Uh, Ruth says, what about Satan getting a foothold in my life because they dabbled in the occult? I have since renounced it, but I wanted to mention it. Ruth, that is a great comment. Ruth, I'll just read Ruth's comment again. What about Satan getting a foothold in my life because they dabbled in the occult? I have since renounced it, but wanted to mention it. Now, Ruth, I think your, your comment is very well suited here because it is certainly possible that through an individual's involvement in the occult, that they could have what's called a foothold. Uh, Paul uses that terminology. The idea that a foothold could be gained because of some ancestors um, uh, dabbling in the occult. I suppose that's possible. But here's the simple thing. The solution is found not in breaking a curse, but in simply renouncing repenting where necessary, and bringing all these things under the power of Jesus. Either we believe what Colossians 2.15 says, that the work of Jesus on the cross disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in his work on the cross. If we believe that, then that should affect the way that we do spiritual war. It doesn't mean that we have no spiritual warfare to do but it changes the way that we do it. We do it with confidence. We don't feel that we do it. We have to do it with strange ceremonies, but we just have the simple idea that we can bring everything under the authority and the command of Jesus Christ. Any principality or power referring to any kind of demonic spirit, we, we just simply, with the power and the authority we receive from Jesus Christ, we declare to them who we are whom we belong to, and that they are disarmed because of the work of the cross. And if it has to be done pointedly, if it has to be done energetically, if it has to be done firmly, if it has to be done with confidence of other believers helping you, then by all means, do it. But you can be confident in the power and the authority, not of you, but in the power and authority of Jesus Christ. So is it possible that there's some kind of foothold or something uh, from a prior generation's uh, occult involvement, maybe, but it can be dealt with in the same way, simply bringing these things to the cross of Jesus and receiving the authority that he has to give. Sometimes I think that we don't perceive that things have a spiritual warfare dynamic when they actually do. And may God give us the wisdom to know uh, what to address in regard to those things. Okay, Sandra says, um, thank you, Pastor, for clearing this up, as I've heard from drinking being passed down from generations from God many times. I'll love to share it. Wonderful, Sandra. Um, 
uh, comment on drug addiction. Um, okay, uh, Agnes says, uh, did Ham's mother willingly have sex with Ham or was she raped by her son Ham? Why was Canaan cursed by Noah? Isn't this the innocent outcome of Ham's sin? Well, Agnes, I think you're slightly... It, it wasn't having anything to do with Ham's mother there in that case, not to my memory. But that whole strange situation in the post-flood world, talked about in Genesis probably chapter 10. Uh, I don't think it's Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 10. But what you have in that curse was not so much the um, declaring of a curse but God simply announcing what would happen in the future. And it did happen that way. I'd recommend you look at my notes there on the Enduring Word commentary. Cynthia says, greetings from Italy. God bless you. Cynthia, we love you. We care for our Italian brothers and sisters really going through it with the coronavirus, as well as in Spain. There's so many sick, so many dead. And of course, these things are happening all over the place in the United States as well. Um, but especially per capita, according to the size of the population, it's been especially bad in Italy and Spain. And our hearts go out to you and just pray that God would continue to give you grace and blessing in these difficult times. Um, all right, I'm just going to deal with a few more questions here. We're getting up to about the 40-minute mark, and maybe we'll go um, to a few more here. Here's Rosa says, uh, I'm a new Christian. Fantastic, Rosa. Welcome to the family. Can you please advise on bringing my son, who's nine, up in the knowledge of the Bible and the power of Jesus? Is it okay for a new Christian to want to listen to sermons all day? Well, first of all, uh, number one, Rosa, yes, it's absolutely fine for a new Christian to want to listen to sermons all day. It's great for an old Christian, too. Listen, there's something beautiful and powerful about the work that the Word of God does in our life. The word of God as we read it directly from the Bible, but then also the word of God as we hear it being preached and proclaimed, especially by gifted preachers and teachers that God has given to the body of Christ. So Rosa, that's a good thing. That's your second question. Secondly, how can you bring up your son in the knowledge of the Bible and the power of Jesus? Listen, Rosa, get an age-appropriate Bible for your son. Maybe something like the New Living translation. Uh, here's my New Living Translation here. It's a good Bible. Much simpler to understand. Read the Bible together with your son. Just say, son, let's sit down. Let's read a chapter. Read it. Discuss it. Talk about it. Start with the Gospels. Start with the story of Jesus. And just start reading it to him. Just start reading your son, the Word of God, and praying with him. That's a tremendous start for you in raising your son in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Okay, I'm going to leave it off here. Uh, I know that there's some more questions. Maybe I can get to them on Thursday's live chat. I want to thank everybody. I want to thank Jose for offering to help Anna with the Spanish. This is a blessing, and I, I pray that maybe we can build more and more of a ministry team that can help one another. And the, the more... Um, whatever ministry I have to offer can be made available to my blessed brothers and sisters in the Spanish-speaking world. I'm very happy about that. God is moving 
in the Spanish-speaking world. And it's exciting to see what he's doing. And I, I pray that God would continue to, to do that in a mighty way. Um, God bless you. Uh, continue to pray. Pray for our ongoing work. Pray for the Arabic website that's getting launched. And uh, pray for whatever it is that God is doing in the midst of this current time. Uh, be healthy. Listen to your public health officials. And let's see what God does in a wonderful way through these difficult times. It gives us great opportunity to show our trust in God, our fearlessness in the present time, and our love for our neighbors in the name of Christ. God bless you. And I'll see you again on Thursday afternoon for our regular um, broadcast. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.